delighted to have uh, Dr. Tally uh, uh, with us. Uh, she uh, is actually kind of a legend here at the NIH uh, for her uh, incredible uh, um, clinical uh, acumen and teaching skills, and people still, still talk about her. So we're really delighted that she's willing to come back and to, and to continue to contribute to the education of the fellows in D.C. and Baltimore. Uh, she uh, was a chief resident at Hopkins and, and then trained in, in critical care medicine at the NIH and also has a unique distinction of also uh, also uh, doing hematology oncology as an intensivist. So she's currently out in Mayo Clinic Phoenix, and we're delighted that she's willing to do this. So thank you again, uh, John B, and uh, we look forward to your talk. Thank you so much, Bert. Um, that was very kind and not not entirely true, but I appreciate it. Um, well, thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I'm going to talk about bleeding and clotting disorders in the ICU. I have no financial disclosures. Um, there are a couple of non-FDA approved use of medications, and I'll highlight them as we go along. Um, just to have a formal learning objective slide, we're going to go over common bleeding and clotting disorders with a real focus on platelets and coag factors. Um, so these are the topics that I'll talk about today. I'll go over thrombocytopenia in the ICU and really focus on HIT and TTP. We'll briefly talk about thrombocytosis um, and then spend some time going over NOACs and reversal strategies, including what our factor replacement options are. Um, I did see a pharmacist on this call. Uh, I'm calling you out, Janelle. So if I say something that you disagree with, please feel free to speak up. Um, then I'll go over DIC and cirrhosis. We'll talk briefly about viscoelastic testing, and then I'll really just kind of touch upon device-related coagulopathy. Um, so we'll start off with a case. Uh, this is a 32-year-old man with hypertension, diabetes, uh, CKD stage 2, hep C, treated, cirrhosis, HIV, viral load undetectable, CD4-204, um, and a recent hospitalization for seizures and gram-negative rod bacteremia who presents back to the hospital now with altered mental status and thrombocytopenia. Um, I'd say this is a pretty common uh, Baltimore, D.C. patient. He's intubated and transferred to the ICU. Um, so, you know, we get these consults as hematologists frequently. What's the etiology of his thrombocytopenia? Um, as you guys are thinking about the differential, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things that we should start thinking about. So he has hep C, he has cirrhosis, he has HIV, he's been recently hospitalized for seizures, so presumably was discharged on anti-epileptics. He's had recent bacteremia, and now he's altered and thrombocytopenic. Um, so in the interest of time, I'll just sort of highlight the things that I'm thinking about here. Um, so whenever you hear fever, thrombocytopenia, altered mental status, you should definitely start thinking about a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia process, uh, specifically maybe TTP, atypical HUS, or classical HUS. Whenever I hear HIV and thrombocytopenia, I'm always thinking about ITP, um, recent hospitalization, presumably heparin exposure, you should be worried about HIT. And then with gram-negative rod bacteremia, um, we're always concerned about whether there's a DIC component. Um, is there marrow suppression with the cirrhosis? Does this patient have an enlarged spleen? Are the platelets just sequestered? Or is it liver failure? As we all know, your liver makes your thrombopoietin, which is then going to tell your marrow to make more platelets. And as your liver gets progressively worse, uh, functionally, that can be an issue. 
Um, and in any patient with HIV, um, you should be thinking about malignancies as well. Or is this all drug related? Um, so this is sort of a broad differential. Uh, and so um, these were the purposes of this talk. I'll go over those four topics. So whenever I think about platelets or thrombocytopenia, I think about whether there is a production issue, a sequestration issue, or whether there is a destruction or a consumption issue. Um, and the way you evaluate those is for production issue, you want to make sure that the marrow is actually working and making platelets in response to the low platelets. Um, if you're at an institution that has access to an immature platelet fraction, that's kind of a great marker to see, is your marrow actually making platelets? Uh, some people refer to it as the reticulocyte of the platelets. So that's great if you have that available. If you don't have that available, unfortunately, you might have to go down to the lab um, and actually look at a smear where you're looking for large platelets that tell you that, gosh, the marrow is working. Or you look at a platelet histogram to see a white distribution of platelets, which again tells you that you have larger platelets and so the marrow is working. Um, if it's a sequestration issue, uh, a, you know, it's, it's hard and challenging to feel splenomegaly in a physical exam, but if your physical exam skills are good and the patient's body habitus is easy, that's an option, or you can always get an ultrasound or additional imaging studies. And in that situation, you might have enough platelets, they're just being hidden in the spleen. And then this one gets, a, is probably the most challenging, right? Is, are the platelets being consumed or destroyed? Um, so is this a bleeding patient? Is this a GI bleed or a trauma where you're just using up your platelets and therefore you have thrombocytopenia? Or is it consumption due to clotting? Is it device-related destruction, drug-related destruction, or immune-mediated destruction? That can be challenging. But in general, when I'm thinking about thrombocytopenia, I'm always sort of going through whether it's a production, sequestration, or which, uh, how much of it is destruction or consumption. Um, and that kind of helps you narrow down the differentials. So the next time you have your thrombocytopenic patient in the ICU, I'd encourage you to think about that. Um, for this patient, for example, this is the smear. Um, if you guys want, you can type in the chat, but I know we're in a lot of conference rooms, so that'll be hard. So I'll sort of review it as we go. So in this high power field, I see three platelets. I'll highlight those for you. I see occasional echinocytes or burr cells. And then what really draws your attention, which I'm sure you guys have all already seen, are these fragments, right? Or schistocytes or helmet cells. And you have quite a few fragments here. Um, so this smear is consistent with microangiopathic hemolytic anemia with thrombocytopenia. Um, and if you see this in a patient with fever or altered mental status, you really should be thinking about TTP. Um, it's rare that you have the classic pentad, um, and it has the inappropriate acronym, right, to help you remember for the boards, fat, RN, so fever, anemia, thrombocytopenia, renal injury, and neurological changes. Um, and it occurs because of immune-mediated destruction of ADMTS13 activity. Um, generally, we say less than 10%, but again, if it's 11, is it unlikely to be TTP? Probably not. And you generally would like to see a concomitant elevation in the inhibitor. It's a medical emergency. We treat it with urgently with steroids and plasma exchange. Um, at a lot of facilities, we don't have access immediately to ADMTS13 activity. And in that case, um, we use the PLASMIC score, which is a pretty well-validated scoring system. Um, 
to for TTP. Um, and so you can find it on MedCalc and, you know, here's your score breakdowns. But generally, if you have a high enough score and a high enough clinical suspicion, um, it's always better to plex first and then worry later if it was or wasn't TTP. Um, so this patient, if they were in your ICU and had a platelet count of two and you needed to put in a phoresis catheter, I'm going to give you guys a second maybe to think about it. I know you might not be able to re respond in the chat, but what product would you consider giving? Um, it's tempting to say platelets, um, but that is most definitely the wrong answer here because transfusion of platelets and TTP has been associated with an increased mortality and an increased thrombosis. Because if you think about it, the problem with this disease is ongoing thrombosis and consumption of platelets. So giving more platelets is sort of like feeding the disease. Um, and so we generally, what you could consider is giving FFP. FFP has ADMTS-13. So a couple of units of FFP would probably be very helpful here um, prior to putting in your catheter. So if your patient didn't have that smear and you were concerned about HIT, um, let's briefly talk about what diagnostic algorithms we would consider as we move forward. Um, so generally, when we think about HIT, we use a screening tool. The most common screening tool that we use is our 4T score calculator. Um, you know, in cardiac surgery patients, for example, you have other maybe perhaps better validated tools, but we generally still use the 4T calculator. Um, and the components of the 4T calculator it's absolutely no reason to memorize it, easily available at MedCalc, um, but it's the degree of platelet fall and the duration of the, or the timing of when that uh, heparin exposure and the platelet fall correlate. And then if you have thrombosis and other causes that you can explain, this is where it gets most uh, subjective, I think, because I might think there's another cause you might think there isn't. Um, and that's where the points in the scoring can be a little bit more variable, but the rest are pretty concrete. Um, and based on your score, you're broken down into low probability, intermediate, or high. Um, if you focus on this side of the diagram, if you focus on the right side, um, if there's a low pretest probability of HIT, you really should stop. There's no reason to send additional testing. HIT's unlikely. Just continue uh, with your heparin. If you do find yourself on your 4T score or whatever screening score you used with an intermediate or high probability of HIT, you generally send the immunoassay, which is the ELISA PF4 antibody optical density assay. Um, and if that is positive, then we send the functional assay, which because it relies on a radioisotope is almost always a send out, uh, the serotonin release assay, which is our functional assay. Um, but HIT is a clinical diagnosis. You can absolutely have immunoassay negative, functional assay negative hit if you have high enough clinical suspicion or concern that this is hit. Um, so if you have a high pretest probability, your immunoassay is positive, it's likely hit, and you should definitely stop heparin and start an alternative uh, anticoagulant. Um, the intermediate gets very tricky, where, um, and that's why if you're going to go looking for hit, you need to be kind of ready to deal with the consequences. So you need to either discontinue heparin for sure, and then you need to start systemic anticoagulation with um, a non-heparinoid. So what are your options for treatment? Well, you can use the direct thrombin inhibitors, Bival or Argatriban, both are IV, both have short half-lives. Um, one we prefer in 
renal dysfunction. The other we prefer liver dysfunction. Um, it, it's really, I think most institutions you find what you're, you have in house. Some institutions are lucky enough to have both and you can pick, um, but it's either is reasonable. And then uh, if you have excellent renal function, which is rare with HIT, um, you can consider Fonda Paranox. Um, we have data now for upfront use of NOAX and HIT. Uh, so that's an option. Um, but the one thing you can't do, of course, is start Coumadin immediately because you're going to get low protein CNS while you're having HIT, and that's going to actually worsen your thrombosis. So until you have platelet recovery, we actually don't start bridging with Coumadin. Um, we'll transition now from thrombocytopenia to the opposite, thrombocytosis. Um, this is a patient with MPN polycythemia vera, so myeloproliferative neoplasm and polycythemia vera, who comes in with swelling in his arm and a platelet count of 2,500,000, so essentially 2.5 million. Um, the providers are concerned that the swelling is due to an arterial clot and possible resultant compartment. They want to start aspirin and heparin while they're waiting for imaging because you guys are all excellent test takers and I've phrased it this way. Um, is this a good idea? The answer is no. Um, and the reason for that is um, you actually worry about bleeding when your platelet count gets that high. So thrombocytosis is defined as platelets greater than 450. Um, most of the times it's reactive. You see it commonly in trauma patients, infect, infected patients, um, but rarely it can be as a result of a primary neoplasm and generally myeloproliferative disease. When do you treat this? Well, it really depends on the symptoms of the patient. We have some data for antiplatelet therapy um, when your platelets are between 500 to 800. But really, when you get above a thousand, thousand, so a million, um, you worry more about uh, bleeding rather than clotting because of an acquired von Willebrand. Because remember, your platelets sequester your von Willebrand. And so you don't have enough von Willebrand. And so you're at an increased risk of bleeding rather than clotting. Um, so you need to test for that. And you might have to consider in some patients uh, platelet phoresis if they're having serious bleeding. So we'll move on to our next case. Um, so this is a 74-year-old patient with AFib. He's on dabigatran or Pradaxa. He's admitted to the ICU with abdominal sepsis, acute kidney injury. Overnight, his pressure requirements worsen. He has increasing abdominal pain. Chest x-ray demonstrates pneumoperitoneum. Gen Surge is consulted for an X-lab. It has now been 18 hours since the patient's last dose of dabigatran. Um, the questions I want you to think about are, how can we tell if the patient is still anticoagulated? What is the best reversal strategy? And if that reversal strategy is insufficient, what other options are available? So I'm just going to go over some of these novel drugs. So to give you an idea of how new these are even to hematologists, um, you know, we just had Coumadin from the 1950s until in 2020, 2010, we had dabigatran, which was our first oral direct thrombin inhibitor. Um, then we ended up with the 10A drugs, so rivaroxaban in 2011, apixaban in 2012, idoxaban in 2015, and most recently, batrixaban in 2017. So the mechanism of action, um, the 10A inhibitors, so they all have XA in their name, so that's an easy way to know what their target is, um, and work by inhibiting 10A and therefore preventing clot formation. 
Dabigatran um, is an oral direct thrombin inhibitor, so it actually inhibits thrombin. Um, and I just want to go over their FDA-approved indications. So Dabigatran has been approved for non-valvular AFib. That's important for all of these drugs. Um, for VTE, uh, for reduction of risk of VTE, um, and then for prophylaxis after orthosurgery. The reason it says yes, no for edoxaban and dabigatran is one was approved for knee, one was approved for hip, but presumably you can use them interchangeably. Um, a couple of caveats that I'll go over is edoxaban was not approved for upfront use for VD VTE, so you generally need to bridge with parenteral. What I mean by that is really Lovenox before you go directly to Adoxaban. I don't think a lot of us use Adoxaban, um, so I, I don't think we come across that, but just so you're aware. And then uh, Matrixaban is now off the market. It was approved really initially just for prophylaxis during hospitalization. Most of us don't like to use the novel drugs for prophylaxis, because as all of us know, you need 48 hours off between procedures. So having a hospitalized or a critically ill patient on one of these drugs and then waiting 48 hours to do a procedure is really not feasible. Um, so Patrixaban, the company took it off the market and they sort of used that prophylaxis during hospitalization, that indication got moved to Rivaroxaban. So um, just so you're aware, those are sort of the ind approved indications. Um, in terms of what do you do when you have to reverse them, well, um, you really need to kind of know when you last got your dose of NOAC. Um, I, I have never used activated charcoal, but I, I suppose if you had an overdose and it was immediate, um, you could call poison control and that would be a reasonable thing to think about. But um, generally, most of our patients are just on their normal doses and ha haven't and it has been sufficient time that that's really not an option. Um, but when you think of these drugs, um, I want you to think about the tests that you can look at to see effect. Uh, so with dabigatran, really thrombin time, because it's a thrombin inhibitor, is a good test. Your PTT will also be prolonged. With the 10 drugs, you can look at an anti-factor 10A. Now, the way we calibrate our anti-factor 10A, if you're at an institution, you might have an individual anti-factor 10A calibrated for Lovenox, a separate one for heparin, or just one that looks at heparin and Lovenox. Um, but those tests are not calibrated for the 10A inhibitors, and that's fine. You can still check an anti-factor 10A and helps you know that the drug is on board. But what do you do with that number? How high is too high? We don't really know what to do with that data. Um, so the way I think about this is if I ever had a patient that came in with altered mental status, concern like AFib, don't know medications, don't have patient or family available, and I'm thinking about an LP, rather than just checking an INR PTT, I generally, in someone who's that altered where I don't know what meds they're on, I will check a thrombin time and an anti-factor 10A just to make sure that I haven't missed that this patient is on another medication. Because with these drugs, you might have mild prolongation of INR or PTT, but it might not be enough to deter you from an LP and they might actually be systemically anticoagulated. So something to think about. The antidotes for these, uh, so for dabigatran, you have a a specific antidote, a monoclonal antibody, idorosizumab or Proxbind. You generally get the full five grams dose. It comes in 2.5 gram vials um, as a reversal agent. Um, because it, uh, this drug accumulates quite a bit in renal failure, um, 
you might have to redose and or you this is the only novel drug uh, or sorry NOAC that you could consider hemodialysis for though there are case reports for the other this is the one that you could think about alternatives of course include PCC Novo 7 tranexamic acid but that's sort of what you should think about for dabigatran for rivaroxaban and apixaban and dexanet alpha is FDA approved as a specific antidote um, it's a decoy um, but the problem is it's not a clean decoy. So in the trials, you had about, depending on which one you look at, 15 to 20% rate of thrombosis. Um, so most of us in the don't use index and alpha up front, and your hospitals might not even have it because a lot of retrospective studies have shown equitable uh, uh, sufficient coagulation. I wouldn't say equitable because that's not true, but sufficient coagulation with Kcentra. Um, and so um, we're at a, a log less cost. So depending on where you are, Kcentra might be perfectly okay uh, to reverse these agents. Or if you want, there's some small data that in neurosurgical patients, maybe there's some superiority, you could consider indexinet alpha. Um, I just briefly want to talk to you about factor replacement options that you may or may not have at your institution. Um, so when you th when we talk about factor, most of us are really talking about our four-factor complex, Kcentra, um, which was FDA approved for reversal of warfarin. Um, but you do have a three-factor uh, uh, PCC available in this country. It's called Profile 9. And it's really nice for patients that might have hit, for example, um, there's minimal hit in the other one, uh, minimal heparin, sorry, in the other ones, but profile nine doesn't contain heparin. So if you had a patient with hit who unfortunately developed a life-threatening bleed because they were thrombocytopenic and were on um, bivalirudin, rather than reversing them with Kcentra, you could consider profile nine. Um, but if your institution doesn't carry it, well, hopefully that minimal exposure of heparin is okay. You could use Kcentra. Um, the other PCC product that um, is commonly available in hospitals is FIBA. Um, it stands for Factor Eight Inhibitor Bypassing Agent. It was designed for hemophiliacs with hemophilia A specifically with Factor Eight Inhibitor. Um, but if you're ever thinking about combining Kcentra and Novo7, um, Kcentra just has Factor Seven, not activated Factor Seven. You can always think about using FIBA instead. So um, there's no data that FIBA rather than using Kcentra and Nova 7 has a less thrombotic risk. But in my mind, sometimes um, if I'm thinking about that, I will just use FIBA instead. Um, and of course, you have Factor 8 products, Factor um, 9 products, you have Von Villebrand products. So those are other factor options that are available. Um, if you have questions about the factors, let me know. I don't see anything in the chat. So going back to this case, um, this was our patient with AFib on dabigatran who had an AKI, has an abdominal perf, and needs to go to the OR. So how can we tell if this patient is still anticoagulated? So because dabigatran is a direct thrombin inhibitor, your most sensitive test is probably your thrombin time. Um, what's the best reversal strategy? You have a nice, clean uh, drug, idarosuzumab, monoclonal antibody, proxpine that's going to bind this drug. So that's probably what I would use. The side effects are the same as what the side effects you'd have for any um, antibody reaction, uh, sorry, antibody infusion. Um, and if the reversal in, is insufficient, what additional options could you consider? Well, because this is dabigatran, you could consider dialysis or factor replacement. Okay, 
I'm going to move on from those. Um, I just want to show you, this is just a summary table that I put together looking at antidotes or reversal, I shouldn't say antidotes, reversal for these drugs. Um, so for heparin, of course, you can use protamine. Protamine also has its own infusion reactions, its own risk of bleeding, but generally you can safely reverse heparin with protamine. You can partially reverse Lovenox with protamine. In red are non-FDA approved suggestions. Um, you can use indexin alpha or PCC to reverse Lovenox. For warfarin, you use vitamin K and PCC. The reason I put them together is you really need to give both of them if you're having a life-threatening bleed with warfarin. And the reason for that is four factor PCC, K-Centra, some of the factors have a very short half-life. For example, factor seven has a half-life of six hours. So it's only going to help you for those hours. Factor 11 has a half-life of 48 hours. So it's going to be in the system longer, but you really need to reverse the primary issue, which is loss of vitamin K, right? So I would give the vitamin K and PCC. Don't just do one. Uh, for dabigatran, like we talked about, we have a specific antidote. You can always consider PCC and or dialysis. For the 10 inhibitors, and really, it's FDA approved for apixaban and rivaroxaban, but presumably you could use it for adoxaban or batrixaban. Um, you could use indexin at alpha, though most of us prefer using PCC for the lower rate of thrombosis, lower cost, and generally, um, though slower duration uh, to treatment, but same coagulation effect. Uh, Fondaparinox, again, no FDA approved reversal agent, but you could use indexin at alpha because of the mechanism of action or PCC. And for the direct thrombin inhibitors, they have really short half-lives. So bival is about 25 minutes or gatroban is about 45 minutes. That's with the presumption of relatively normal kidneys and liver. But um, even then, you can either wait it out or you can consider PCC. We're going to transition to talking about DIC. Um, so DIC, it's sort of in its name. It's disseminated intravascular coagulation. It's really a clotting disorder. And because you're having disseminated clotting and consumption of factor, you have low coag factors and you're at a risk of bleeding. Um, I think some people talk about type 1, type 2 DIC, early, late DIC, um, but you can have significant overlaps. So I kind of just prefer to think about it as a clotting disease where you're chewing up factor and because you're chewing up factor, you're at an increased risk of bleeding. Um, common causes include sepsis, trauma, malignancies, obstetric complications, um, which can be quite significant, and vascular malformations. Um, so your EVAR patients who then have pseudoaneurysms and are continuously having shearing um, can have DIC. DIC is a clinical diagnosis similar to ARDS, similar to HIT. You can use the International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis or the ISTH DIC scoring algorithm. Again, no need to memorize, easily available on MedCalc to de determine if it's likely or unlikely to have DIC, the patient's not likely or unlikely to have DIC, but again, it's a clinical diagnosis. Um, so generally, if you have a suspicion for DIC, you can use the algorithm. If the score is greater than five, it's compatible with DIC. If it's not, it's unlikely to be DIC. I don't know if I'd say no DIC, but unlikely. Um, and you can consider repeat testing. And in terms of what, how do you manage DIC? Well, if they're bleeding and they have DIC, you generally want to keep their platelets closer to 50. Um, you generally want to replace their factor and primarily fibrinogen. Um, I avoided putting in a picture of the coag cascade, but when you think about it, fibrinogen and thrombin are sort of at the base of that coag cascade, 
And so really you want to give cryo and replace your fibrinogen to prevent your risk of bleeding. Um, you can consider vitamin K if you think there's a nutritional component. You can consider antifibrinolytic therapy if there really is excessive bleeding, but that comes with a pretty high clotting risk as well in DIC. Um, if they're stable, if they're not bleeding or clotting, you can just consider prophylaxis. If they're clotting significantly with DIC, and the classic example of this is someone with acute promyelocytic leukemia, right? They're coming in with horrific DIC, they're clotting as you're trying to even pass the wire through to place a line. Um, in those patients, unfortunately, despite the bleeding risk, you might have to consider at least fixed dose heparin to mitigate the amount of DIC that you're seeing. You know, in the interest of time, I won't go over the pathophys in great detail, but essentially, um, because you have endothelial damage, if you have an infection, you have activation of neutrophils and neutrophil extracellular traps, um, and all of these sort of lead to activation of your coag cascade, which leads to consumption, like we talked about, of factors and platelets, and increased fibrinolysis, which leads to impaired clotting and increased risk of thrombosis. Okay. I'm going to transition from that to talking about how to distinguish between DIC and liver disease. Um, this comes up pretty com commonly as well in the ICU. Um, so this is a case of a 53-year-old man uh, who has alcoholic cirrhosis. He's worsening hypotension. He's requiring pressors. So he's transferred to the ICU. His labs on admission are notable for a hemoglobin of 7, a white count of also 7.2, platelets of 88,000. Um, one week before admission, they were 84. His T billy is 8.4. His prothrombin time is 17 seconds. APTT of 52 seconds. D dimer of 1.0 microgram per mil and a fibrinogen concentration of 210. Um, are these discrepancies in coagulation reflective of liver disease or DIC? So it can often be hard to distinguish. And to be quite honest, once you have advanced liver disease, I'm not sure that you can tell the difference between whether there's real DIC, cirrhosis, or significant overlap. Um, we talk about testing of certain factors that are made by the endothelium rather than the true hepatocytes, so factor eight and von Willebrand, um, which can or cannot be helpful because factor eight, remember, is an acute phase reactant, so sometimes it can be elevated and um, it might not necessarily answer your question. Um, what I do think is helpful is assessing DIC labs. So looking for fibrin degradation products, looking for thrombin time, uh, trending a D-dimer to see if those are getting worse or better and to see if the clinical picture is suggestive DIC um, and really kind of seeing how significant of a change um, that patient who has known cirrhosis, if you have prior labs, is currently having during this hospitalization from baseline. So if we look at this case, um, and I sort of just pulled out the pertinent findings, you know, just like any test question, you have T-Billy and all this other extraneous information that might not be helpful. Um, if you look at this patient and kind of go through the ISTH score, um, you end up with a score of four, which suggests unlikely to be DIC. And especially in a cirrhotic patient with a fibrinogen of 2.1, this is grams per liter rather than grams per deciliter. If you're used to deciliter, 210 that's a reasonable fibrinogen. So really it's unlikely to be DIC. I'm just gonna talk about briefly the coagulopathy of cirrhosis. Um, this is a really nice article. It is older, but if you're interested in clotting and bleeding and cirrhosis, um, this is a really good review article you can look at. 
Um, when you think of the three phases of clotting, so primary hemostasis, blood clotting, and then clot dissolution or fibrinolysis, you have in liver disease factors that are pro-hemostatic and unfortunately anti-hemostatic at the same time. And so it's very hard to know if your cirrhotic patient is actually at an increased incidence of clotting or bleeding. And as you know, up to about a quarter, depending on what study you look at, patients with cirrhosis can have portal vein clots and additional clots in addition to risks of bleeding. Um, so it's, it can be really challenging trying to manage these patients. In addition to issues with factor production, these patients with cirrhosis generally have hemodynamic alterations, so poor flow, which again is why there's a predilection for forming clots in the portal circuit due to portal hypertension. They have endothelial dysfunction, um, there's renal failure, and they actually can make endogenous heparinoids as well. Um, so commonly in cirrhotic patients, these are sort of the tests that we all check every day. We generally always get a daily INR because we use it in our meld sodium calculator. Um, the problem with the INR, of course, is it's a marker of procoagulant factors. It really doesn't count for the anticoagulant ones, right? So an INR of 2.5 might actually be placing your patient at an increased risk of clotting, um, but there's really no way to know that. And it's also difficult because sometimes, you know, you can find that we set arbitrary INRs for what is safe for a procedure. And I don't really know. I know that an INR of seven sounds scary to do a paracentesis, but I'm not really sure that three or 2.5 is too unsafe. Um, and whether I really do need to give this volume overloaded patient additional FFP to justify the procedure. Um, so it can be challenging. Um, similarly, platelets, it's a little bit more helpful. You have sometimes for some procedures, more clear thresholds um, established by guidelines. Um, but what can be difficult is, yes, that's helpful for platelet number, but it really doesn't account for how the platelets themselves are working. So platelet function. And the more platelets we give, um, they're the more, they're the most alloimmunogenic component of blood. So that can be an issue in patients that are awaiting transplantation or are transplant candidates. Um, fibrinogen, again, is easily available. I really like replacing fibrinogen first uh, with cryo because like I talked about, it's the base of your clotting cascade. So if you have adequate fibrinogen, generally that helps in a bleeding situation. Um, so I find it quite helpful, but it doesn't account for the fact that the fibrinogen might be misbehaving. You might have dysfibrogenemia, which is associated with liver disease. Um, and clear cut levels are not as well understood. So if you have really severe cirrhosis, maybe a fibrinogen greater than 80 is okay. Maybe you need to aim more for 100, 110, 150. It gets um, really unclear. And then viscoelastic testing has been most studied other than trauma and OB in cirrhotic patients. It's a great marker for global coagulation, um, but it may not always be available. And remember, it's an ex vivo test that's trying to look at in vivo clotting. Um, so it's very good, but it's not perfect. Um, I'm going to transition now to talking about viscoelastic testing. So um, this is a really nice YouTube video. If you have time, you should check it out. It's about tags, but you can apply the similar concept to Rotems, where essentially once you have blood, you inject it into the system. And I'll talk about this in the next slide, whether either the pin spins or the cup spins. And as it's spinning, the blood starts to clot. And the displacement of that pin can be displayed uh, as a linear uh, 
marker of clot formation um, and can help you sort of understand how the patient's clotting is working. Um, so looking at TEG versus Rotem, in TEG, the cup is spinning. So the cup is spinning, the pin is stagnant, and as the blood clots, the pin is displaced. In Rotem, the pin is spinning, and you get a picture from that rather than from the cup spinning. Um, so your pictures can look actually not dissimilar, but you have really you have clot formation, clot pro propagation and stabilization, and then eventually clot lysis. Um, you can find these online. This is from Rebel EM, um, where they sort of go over what factors you need. And I know people have lots of fun acronyms for sort of remembering what the R time, the K time, the alpha angle all relate to. But what I find really helpful is just kind of thinking about the formation of clots, right? So you initially need to have clot formation. Then you need to propagate the clot and have it stabilize. And platelets really are critical for that. And then eventually you need the clot to dissolve um, or degradation and lysis. Um, so that's sort of how I think about it. Um, if you're visual, I know there are all these like pictures of different uh, glasses available, if that helps you. Um, and then Rotem, I just kind of think about it similarly. It's clot formation propagation, stabilization, and lysis. Um, and there are subtleties. Now you have all these cool things you could do with tags and rotems. But again, if you're more visual, maybe this is helpful for you. Ooh, sorry. Lots of clicking. Sorry about that. Um, but you can see that. Okay. So like I said, it's a good indication of overall global clotting function, but you don't account for the endothelium, right? You have von Willebrand factor. You have a lot of clotting factors. You have a lot of your endothelium obviously plays a critical role in clotting. So you don't have that in viscoelastic testing. So you're making assumptions. Um, it's really not validated or studied in patients on anticoagulation. So if, you if you're on therapeutic warfarin, but your R time isn't prolonged enough, does that mean I need to aim for a higher R time? We don't really know that. Um, and I know that, <clears throat> sorry, during COVID, um, a lot of centers were using TEGs and ROTEMs to decide whether to anticoagulate or not. Um, but no study, to my knowledge, has really shown great evidence that we can use those tests to do that. Um, so they're not validated for a lot of things that we do sort of apply them to. Um, they're ve well validated for cirrhosis, obstetrics, bleeding, and trauma, but not a lot of other things. Um, and a recent study came out that I just thought I would highlight because it came out last month in Critical Care Med that looked at how viscoelastic testing could potentially be altered in the setting of anemia. Um, now, there are some criticisms of the study in the interest of time. I'm not going to go over that. But essentially, your K time um, or your clot formation um, is directly correlated um, with your hemoglobin. So you can see as your hemoglobin goes up, you have potentially a higher K time, whereas your clot strength or your max amplitude is inversely correlated with your hemoglobin. As your hemoglobin goes up, it actually goes down. So what I want you to take away from this is, again, that a viscoelastic test is just one marker of clotting or bleeding. It's not perfect. It has its limitations. Um, that's what I would sort of take from that. Okay, um, I'll try to get through um, mechanical complications of circulatory devices. And I'm really going to focus on bleeding because this could be, for each device, could be a talk by itself. Um, and I think on the website, um, the, the CC project, you do have some talks on ECMO 
coagulopathy. So I'm just going to do a really brief highlight here. So um, the main concept that we really need to start with is platelet dysfunction associated with shear stress and just shear stress and its effect on all components of blood. Um, so to give you an example, this is sort of the shear stress that normal uh, normally is experienced in arteries, arterioles, and veins. Obviously, because of low flow in veins, um, you have the least amount of shear stress. And arterioles, because they have the short, smallest diameter, you, you experience a little bit more. As you get into stenotic vessels, your shear stress can increase. And, in, and then as you transition to axial, which we don't use as much, of course, but really centrifugal LVADs, you can see that you have logs higher shear stress. And that's really the concept that we'll focus on as we go through. Um, so this, the fact that the shear stress, antiplatelet therapy, and acquired von Willebrand, and additional, uh, the flow can have on your coag factors. Um, so I'll briefly talk about an acquired von Willebrand. So because of this high flow, apart from impacting platelets, you actually shear von Willebrand, which is a pretty large molecule. And what ends up happening is you have loss of these high molecular weight multimers. So not only do your platelets not work well because you're experiencing the shear stress and that's causing degranulation for them, but in addition, the way your platelets work is they bind through GP1B to von Willebrand and lo and behold, you don't have enough von Willebrand because you're shearing your high molecular weight. So that's sort of a double whammy, if that makes sense. In addition, um, we have this concept of Heidi's phenomena, right? We think of that classically with aortic stenosis, where because you have decreased pulse pressure, that's how it was originally uh, defined in the 1950s, you have decreased perfusion to the gut and the mucosa, um, and that leads to formation of friable new vessels that are likely to bleed. Um, in animal models, this is kind of a cool study. It's obviously an animal study. Um, they looked at the gut endothelium in control animals and in animals that were on VADs. Um, I'm not sure if you can see this very well on the PowerPoint, but you have healthy vessels here. And when you look at patients uh, or animals, sorry, on LVADs, you can see that the blood vessels are not as well formed. Um, so again, suggesting that lack of pulsatility or this flow pattern can contribute to ischemia in distal gut basins, for example, and put you at increased risk of ABMs, which again, contribute to bleeding. Um, I want you to see this really cool platelet ag study. This is from a patient of mine that had a VAD, um, and I'll highlight two things. So <clears throat> when you look at the arachidonic acid and the epi agonists, those are severely uh, low, and that's an effect of this patient being on aspirin. So that's easy to explain, and it's also sort of explains the ATP release. Um, and again, I don't expect you to go over the ag details, um, the ag studies in detail, but what I want you to see is that you have this ristocetin dose high response, um, which suggests that patients with LVADs, and this is one of many patients, but have um, low von Willebrand factor activity. And that's because, again, you're churning through your high molecular weight multipers. Um, so you can clinically see that. So transitioning from VADs, um, I'll just talk briefly about the impact of this shear stress in ECMO. Um, so this is a cool study that looked at the wall shear stress uh, on the impeller of the centromag. 
Um, and so it's looking at three different RPMs. So this is 2100 RPM, 2800 RPM, and at 4000 RPM. And at those RPMs, you can see how much the scalar shear stress is changing across the pump. And as that shear stress changes, it affects um, your platelet dysfunction and your platelet binding to von Willebrand. So this is platelet adhesion at baseline. This is at two and four hours at either the 2100, the 2600, or the 4000 RPMs. And you can see how significant, how much significantly lower binding you have at that speed. Um, and this is sort of a histogram that's showing the same data. Um, and just for completeness, so if that's the issue when you're flowing at 4,000 RPMs, I'd like you to, you know, kind of think back to what your impellas are flowing at. Um, and you have similar acquired von Willebrand with that as well. But what is cool is that if you go off pump within a couple of hours, I forget if it was hours or 24 hours, you do have reaccumulation of high molecular weight multimers. Um, so this is reversible once you come off. Obviously, maybe a little bit easier on impellas and ECMOs and VADs, which are not coming off immediately, but um, just something to think about. Um, I'll briefly talk about clotting um, because, again, I don't think well, we could talk about it in just in, as part of this talk, but um, just being on an ECMO circuit, right? You're, you're exposing your blood to the outside environment. And that um, in itself, because of the artificial surface, puts you at increased risk of fibrin deposition and clotting. Um, in addition, you have all of this free hemoglobin, you have circulating microparticles, you have cytokines that are all part of your clotting cascade. And then this abnormal blood flow that we've talked about, the shear stress, um, the large surface area, the drops in um, flow rates as you're going through maybe the oxygenator versus connector size. Those are all reasons for forming clots. Um, this is a neat study that looked at the incidence of clot formation in VA versus VB ECMO. Um, I won't go into the details of what an ETP is, but you can think of it as clot generation. And in VA, which is in dark, they had 17 patients. Um, and you can see that they had generally more clot formation um, than in VV, despite aiming for higher ACTs with heparin in this study. Um, so this was 17 VA patients and 22 VV. Okay, so overall, I'd say that um, in addition to the risks of bleeding exposure, like we talked about to these artificial membranes, um, increases your risk of clotting. This clotting can cause additional consumption of factors. So as you're forming clot, kind of similar to DIC, that eventually can result in bleeding. And as we use more and more of these devices, I think we're going to re require ongoing mitigation of clotting bleeding to allow patients to survive on these devices for longer periods of time. Um, that's really all I have. I put my email here. Um, you're welcome to email me if you have any questions um, or please ask now. Um, thank you for your time and your attention. Thank you for joining.